0: We are in uh, our third week here of beautiful resistance, and uh, we're talking about uh, things that we should be resisting as Christians, uh, that the anecdote for some of the things that we struggle with the most is right there, right in front of us in Scripture, and that we're not necessarily called in any of these uh, conversations that we're having to start a fight with somebody, to change their mind, to be aggressive in combating kind of how other people live, but actually to see that the culture is going in one direction And we're called to resist by standing, by staying in the place that God has called us to stand. And today we're talking about cynicism. Uh, So, I don't know, I feel like an expert on this topic. Um, When you grow up on the East Coast, you get like a PhD in cynicism. In fact, uh, I used to joke that cynicism was one of my spiritual gifts, um, or sarcasm would be one of my spiritual gifts. And that's somewhat true. I think people on the East Coast are generally a little bit more... Cynical than other parts of our country. Um, thank you. Oh, look at that. First class. Um, but I, I do think we often struggle with cynicism, and we get to a place where we just think, maybe things just aren't going to work, or maybe God's just not going to be there and listen. He's not going to come through, or you know, things are impossible, things that we're called to do. We can come up with a list of reasons why we shouldn't do them from the very beginning, and we kind of, instead of thinking the best about something, we think the worst about it. And we can kind of start to be this sort of grumpy, older version of ourselves uh, for a couple reasons. And so today, what I want to do is I want to identify what makes us cynical sometimes and things that we actually probably need to pay attention to and deal with. And then I want to talk through what is the antidote to cynicism. Like, how do we combat this by standing where God has called us to stand and doing what he's called us to do? And it may not be exactly what you think, but I think it'll kind of all kind of make sense. So... um, I wanted to start with just talking about maybe some of the common reasons why we why we might find ourselves being cynical. And I think the one that's at the core of sort of someone who's struggling with cynicism is the fact that we don't believe that God is good. By the way, if you're following along in the app, there are fill-ins that you can... I had somebody last week tell me, oh, I love this app. It's amazing. I filling in stuff and just sending myself the notes at the end, that's great. But but I do feel like people might look at me and think, why is the, why is that person on their phone? We go ahead, and be on your phone. It's fine. Just, you know, use it for the app. That's what we're that's what we're giving you. So we don't believe that at the at our core, we don't believe that God is good. There's something about our relationship with God or that something that's happened in our lives where we don't necessarily know if we hundred percent are bought into the idea that God is good, and it creates a cynical heart over time. We start to question everything. We start to knock down the goodness of God. We start to believe that maybe He's not good, that maybe things aren't going to work out, that maybe we're going to be stuck in situations that we don't necessarily you know, know a way out of, that God's not really there. And we're kind of going through the motions of worshiping God, but we don't actually believe that He's good. And I want you to know that God is the... Most joyful being in the entire universe. Like, as God created everything, I mean, I love this picture in Genesis, uh, you know, where God is creating everything, and every time he creates something, he steps back, and what does he say about it? It's good. There's no cynicism in God's heart at all. He, like, loves everything that he creates. He loves you, and he's joyful, and he's full of hope. And, like, we tend to sometimes focus on the times where we don't think God does exactly what we want for you know whatever situation we're in or we focus on times where we maybe think that God doesn't necessarily love us the same way that he loves other people or or his other creation but at the core if we're coming from a place of understanding that God is good it helps us to be hopeful to be joyful instead of being cynical the second idea is reasons why we're cynical is we've been hurt we've been hurt Let's just admit it from the beginning. Someone has hurt us. Something has hurt us. And we've been hurt in two, two different ways. One, we've been hurt by people. There have been individuals who have let us down, who have hurt us, who have done things in our lives, and we just assume everyone now is going to be like that because we're living in that hurt. Instead of dealing with that situation where someone has hurt us, instead of seeking forgiveness or asking for forgiveness or, or asking for you know some sort of change in that relationship, we just cut the person off, and then we say that it's all on them, and now we expect everyone else to hurt us, right? It's kind of like when we, I don't know if you've ever been around sort of a rescued animal. They just don't trust the same way that they used to, right? Somebody hurt them, and now they don't trust, and it's a protection mechanism, right? It's like saying, hey, I'm not going to let you hurt me. I'm going to stay far enough away from you so that you don't, and we become cynical, and we assume everybody's trying to take advantage of us. We assume everyone's going to hurt us. We assume everyone's going to let us down, And just like to let you in on like a little secret, everyone's gonna let you down. Like people are they're messed up, man. We're an imperfect church for imperfect people. We're gonna let you down. I'm gonna let you down. You're like not my pastor. Yes, I will. I will let you down. I will. Our staff will let you down. Your people in your small group, they're gonna let you down. It's gonna happen. Now the question is, will you allow that to make you cynical? Or will you find ways to repair those relationships and work through that baggage? and deal with that conflict, and have conversations around the hurt that someone caused you, and challenge your brothers and sisters to be better than they have been or were to you, and not assume that everyone's going to be the same way. So we've been hurt by people. We've also been hurt by the church. I think some of this hurt is institutional. And we have to admit that the church has done some things over its incredibly long you know, 2,000 year run, that has hurt people. You, you can find things in every period of time, in almost every single church, I mean in every church, that, where people have been hurt. It will happen. It will. Because people are, are, are imperfect and they will do things that will hurt others. And there's been times where we've had to purify the church and cleanse the church and call out the junk that's happened. And I will be the first one to stand up and say when something's going wrong, or someone's being abused, or the church is doing something it's not supposed to, to call that out. I'm with you on that, but we can't allow that to create a cynicism in our heart that allows us to not be able to do the things that God has called us to And in fact, we resist that cynicism, right? And you might think we resist it with hope and joy, and you're not exactly wrong about that, but I want to make the case today that we resist it with celebration. So I'm in, I'm in Luke chapter 14, if you want to follow along, 14 and 15 is where we're going to be. You can pick up one of the Bibles on the chairs. Somebody can give me a page number if they want. Sword drill. I don't have any candy with me. I know, I do. I, always, I, I, I do. I have to be honest. I looked at like the five-pound uh, peanut butter cup the other day at the store, but I just couldn't bring myself to spend 20 dollars on like a joke so trying to use my money correctly and not be a hypocrite, all right, so. Um, all right, Luke chapter 14. Uh, I'm going to start with verse 1 here. And just follow along, because I think sometimes we have this idea that, that God or Jesus is not necessarily joyful, that, you know, they're very serious and stern. And um, I think Jesus shows us very clearly that God is unbelievably joyful, and Jesus loves to party, right? Jesus loves to party. So here, here's Jesus. He's... Um, Verse uh, Chapter 14, verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. I want to set the scene for you. He's at this Pharisee's house. Oftentimes, Pharisees, uh, and, and in that culture, people would sit inside and outside. It was kind of like an open seating. They're in a desert. doesn't rain very much. That's uh, an extension of their home to kind of have a courtyard or whatever. Oftentimes, this sort of meal would be happening out in view of the rest of the people. It's almost like the Pharisees didn't mind sort of showing off to the community what they were doing and eating and whatever. And so Jesus is at this party, at this Pharisee's house, and there's a lot of important people there. We hear later on that there's actually a lot, of, uh, a lot of people that wouldn't have been invited to this party that are following him around, kind of going where he goes. So it's likely there's actually some people just outside the courtyard, just outside of, you know, just they can hear probably what's going on, who are kind of hanging out waiting for Jesus to come and go from these events. And so he goes into this event and there's this long table and people are seating themselves based on kind of their status in the world, right? And so some people are seating themselves up near the head of the table and some people are taking positions in the rear. I know where Jesus sat. I know he sat all the way at the back of the table, the worst position, because he makes a comment to everybody there. And he says, you know, what's kind of crazy about what's going on here is like, When you go to a party, you should just sit all the way down, just have some humility. Assume you're going to be in one of the worst positions at the table. And then how great is it that the host can come in and say, you know what, hey Jesus, why don't you move up a couple spots? Let's put you in the middle or put you near the front of the the table because we all want to hear from you. We all want to ask you questions and talk to you. He's like, that's a lot better than if you sit yourself near the head of the table and think you're something great. And then the host comes and says, hey, can you move down? Can you get out of the way for so-and-so? We're going to sit them here where you're sitting. You're in the wrong spot, right? And so Jesus kinda of just makes this comment and he's commenting on how ridiculous they are about positioning themselves. Like he's just sorta of had it with what they're doing. Like he's just sort of disgusted with like the jockeying that's going on at this table about people's position. I think he still is probably, you know, disgusted sometimes when we try to jockey and position ourselves as better or worse than other people. We're not. We're all worse. <laughs> we're all, we're all messed up. We all have sin. All of us have things going on in our lives that are dragging us down. That we're fighting. That you know, everyone's carrying in whatever baggage they're carrying in. So Jesus is like, why are we doing this, right? And so there's one guy there who's the guy. You know, at every uh, event or meal, when things the tension starts to ratchet up a little bit, they make a joke, or they say a platitude. Or like they just kind of like do something kind of smooth over the tension in the room. So there's one guy there and he says, when one of them, one of those at the table with him heard this, so he heard Jesus call out the people who thought there was something and, you know, had no humility. (coughs) He said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. We we all have a guy like this, right? At our like family events. This one is trying to keep the peace. The person that's like, hey, I'm just gonna say something to move the conversation along. I'm gonna ignore the tension that's in the room right now, and we're just gonna kind of move past this, right? There's this, there's just you have a brother like this, an uncle. Well, it's never the uncle or the brother. Uh you have an aunt like this, or a grandma, right? <laughs> Who's probably trying to keep everybody from fighting. And this guy just says, This poor guy, he did not know what he was stepping into. Because Jesus just unloads, he's like, Oh, okay, we're gonna talk about sitting at the banquet and the final days. Like, I don't have time for this. And here's what Jesus says. And I read this with the sarcasm that Jesus would have said this with. Like, Jesus was actually quite sarcastic at times when he had to make a point and frustrated with all of them because they weren't getting it. And so Jesus replied, a certain man preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had invited, come for her. everything is now ready. So like the banquet announcement would go out, they would start preparing it, people would have to get ready for it. And then when it was ready, they would send people out to go get the people. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said, I have bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have bought a yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another one. I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported to his master. The owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant Okay, fine, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. And the master told the servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those were invited. will get a taste of the banquet. He basically says to everybody at that table, none of you are going to taste this banquet that I'm talking about. I have come here for people who are humble and sinful and they are aliens and they are outcasts and they are crippled and they are blind and you step over them every single day and don't notice them. I will fill my kingdom, my party, with people who deserve to be here, not the ones who are jockeying for position. Jesus just slings it right out to the guy who calls out the platitude and tries to make the tension go away. He just goes right back at him. You're not going to be part of the banquet, dude. You're missing it. Like I'm talking about you. You're not going to be there. You know who's going to be there? All the people that you stepped on on the way out. Now, just think, if you're sitting just outside this courtyard, following Jesus around as he goes from place to place, and you've watched him now go into this like incredibly like uh, sophisticated you know, like place, and you kind of wonder about why is Jesus hanging out with, these Pharisees. I imagine the regular person was looking at Jesus and thinking, why is he hanging out with Pharisees? And the Pharisees were looking at Jesus and they were thinking, why is he hanging out with outcasts and foreigners and people who are blind and people who are lame? Why? And sinners, why? Like both groups are looking at Jesus and wondering why he's hanging out with the other group. And he says this probably in earshot of the people who he's actually talking about. I'm going to fill my my kingdom up with them. He basically could have said, hey, I'm going to fill my kingdom up with people right here, and you guys aren't going to be invited. But Jesus just hammers them. But he he says to them, like, look, I want you to understand that while I'm making a point here about your pride and about what's going on here, I want you to know my kingdom is like a party. It's like a banquet that's unbelievable. I don't know what your answer was to the greatest party you've ever been a part of, but probably it was... Pretty incredible food, pretty incredible people, pretty great occasion. There was some reason to be celebrating. There was something amazing. And that's what we hear about in Scripture, about what God's going to do at the end of days. That He refers to it in the Old Testament like a banquet. In fact, at one point in the King James, which is just fantastic, he says the banquet will be full of all the fat things. So the table is going to be loaded up with Barbecue. Right, like it's going to be the best. It's going to be something you don't want to miss. It's going to be the rager of all ragers, the one that you thought that was going to be in high school but it was a letdown. The one you thought you were going to go to in college but it was a letdown. That's the one that's coming one day when God comes back and throws this huge banquet, this huge party. Jesus loves to party. Think about his first miracle. What is his first miracle? He goes to a wedding and after you know, like them celebrating for a short time, the wine runs out. So what does Jesus do after a little coercion from his mom? Blesses the water and turns it into wine, and it's even better than what they brought out for the guests in the beginning. And everybody parties for another couple days to celebrate the wedding that they're at. Like, I want you to understand, Jesus wants the party. He loves you, and he's full of joy. We think of him sometimes as this judgmental, because he will judge someday. And we think of him as this heavy, right? Because God is serious and full of justice. But also, God is joyful and full of hope and loves you and calls you good and is here to fill his party with you. Right? Not the people who have it all figured out, not the arrogant and the prideful, the humble, the sinful, the people who are struggling, the people who are barely hanging on. Like, that's who the pe- people who get to go to the party that God is about to throw. And Jesus is all about, about the party. Chapter 15, he goes on, just like a couple verses later. Similar situation. He's talking to tax collectors and sinners now. Different audience, right? But same similar situation. He's now talking to those people who are sitting outside the wall. He's now talking to them, and the Pharisees are watching him and judging him for being around these sinners. This is what he says. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. the Pharisees... And the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them, right? It's the opposite now. One's judging him one way and one's judging him the other way. Jesus didn't seem to care. He was just going to continue to go around and spend time with people because all of them in his eyes are good and lovely and he wants to be with them. Verse 3, Then Jesus told this parable, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. He starts a story, and this will turn into three parts, where he says, hey, something's missing, something's lost. When we find that, we throw a party. When we find that, there's rejoicing in heaven. When we find that, we're full of joy. Like, there's no room for cynicism. There's no, there's no saying, hey, that, that sheep will never be found. There's no, hey, let's cut off that one. That one's not going to you know, make it into the kingdom. Let's just let that one be and let it go and cut it off. There is none of that. Right? The, the, the shepherd goes and leaves the 99 and says, I'm going to go find the one. And you may not believe that we're going to find it and you may not be sure where it is, and you, but I'm going to go and find this sheep. I'm going to throw it over my shoulders and bring it back and we're going to have a party. We're going to be full of joy. We're going to celebrate. And I want you to understand that in each one of these situations, Jesus is saying the like the, the end part of the story is that they throw a party. Like right? celebration is the activity of joy and hope. And if you have joy and you have hope in your life, and it's not cynicism, it is shown through celebration. Right? And that's exactly what happens in these stories as the whatever person that they're talking about goes and finds the item that has lost. The thing that happens is joy and hope, and they celebrate. You might be asking yourself, what does that look like? And I just want to ask, are you constantly celebrating the things that are important for the kingdom of God? Are you celebrating transformation in people's lives? Like, How many of your small groups are you, are you sharing testimonies about things that are going on in your lives? Are you sharing when times are difficult and having people pray over you right, and carry the burden for you in those difficult times? as an act of defiance against the culture around us who will tell us God is not good when you suffer. right? How many of us are celebrating the little th- wins, the things that God does do and show up to give everybody else joy and everybody else hope when we hear those stories? You know, One of the things we're doing when we do our worship night here in, in a couple of weeks, months, I don't know how long it is until it comes up soon, is we're working on having testimonies that go with each section of the worship night because we should be sharing more stories and celebrating life change more. It's not just life change, it's sort of anytime we find ourselves in transition, anytime we see somebody come into the kingdom of God for the first time, any time we see somebody get up off their feet and get clean and start a new pattern in their life and do something different. we need to be celebrating all of those moments and sharing all of those stories. Because that's what it looks like to have joy and hope. Celebration is the activity of joy and hope. Jesus goes on. Here's what he says. Luke 15, verse 8. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. And in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And Jesus is telling them, hey, uh, the thing that lights up heaven the most, the thing that creates the most amount of joy and the most amount of hope is watching someone be found. And we party every time. Can you imagine? Like, just what does that look like? I definitely, as a teenager, like, thought about this quite a bit. Like, what is a party in heaven look like? And how often is that going on? Is it just like, you know, like the deli counter or the DMV where like click another number happens and then boom, another party explodes and it's just like never ending? Wouldn't you get tired of celebrating that much? Like wouldn't you be like, all right, cool. Like but we knew that guy was going to be fine, right? Like, you know, like wouldn't you get to a point where that celebration might end, it doesn't end. It doesn't end because every time someone comes into the kingdom of God, there is a celebration, and there is rejoicing, and there is joy, and there is hope, right? And it is exploding every single time. You, hopefully, were one of those celebrations at some point. You think, like, you know, I'm the least significant person in the kingdom of God, but there was a party in heaven, and angels rejoiced when you became a Christian. And if you don't know Jesus... Right? That party is just waiting. It's just on hold. It's just ready to go. As soon as you decide to transfer your faith to Jesus and say, Not not on my own, not not my sin. Am I gonna stand in front of God and tell him that I'm okay because I was a good person? I'm gonna tell him that I'm okay. I'm justified here because Jesus died for me and paid for my sin. Right? And when we make that transition, that's when the party happens. But that's not the end of the story, right? Jesus continues. Uh, to tell a third story about a son. And this one's a lot more complicated. And he tells a story about a son who basically uh, tells his dad, Hey, hey, there's two brothers and and a dad. And he says, Hey, Dad, I want my inheritance now. It's basically the equivalent in Hebrew society of telling your parents you hate them, right? And he takes his inheritance and he goes off to a foreign land and he squanders it in wild living, And he sows his oats. He goes to Las Vegas and spends it all on gambling. That's essentially what happens. And worse than that, right? And so he finds himself at his lowest moment where his entire life has come apart, where he squandered all the wealth that he got from his father, where he's basically given it away to another culture that is terrible. And he finds himself at the bottom of the barrel and he's feeding pigs, which to a Jewish person would have been a job that would have been unclean. You wouldn't have wanted to do that. Would have been anything you could do to avoid that. He found himself at the bottom and he said, You know, the servants in my father's household live better than I'm living right now. And so I'm going to, you know, swallow my pride and find some humility. And I'm going to go home and I'm going to beg my father to take me back. And I'm going to beg him to let me be a servant in his household. At his lowest moment, he finally picks everything up and says, I give up. I have truly found humility. I'm going to go home and see how dad reacts to this. Even in your own relationship with your father, you've probably been in situations where you've had one of two responses to when you found yourself in a bad situation and needed to go and talk to your, to your dad about it, right? You've had the, oh, no, dad's going to kill me thought, which could have been healthy in some way. You might need to get your butt kicked once in a while, right? But the fear, maybe, of your father wouldn't necessarily serve you, right? Or you've had the, oh, no, I'm in a horrible position and I need my dad. I think this is much more that one. Like, the humility that's found and says, like, I I can't do this on my own and I I need my father to help me fix this, to help me figure out a way out of this, to help me get out from under the shame that I'm feeling and the guilt that I'm feeling and the sin that's in my life and to work this out. I can't do it on my own. I've tried this and here I am feeding pigs completely broke in a foreign land. So I'm gonna limp home with humility and I'm gonna beg my dad to take me back. And we'll see. We'll see what he does. Now, God's not cynical. Right? When this father sees the son coming from a million miles away, he doesn't go, oh Right. He's not upset about what's gone on. He doesn't take it personally, the sin that's happened, which was against him. Right? His response to this whole situation is not what the son expected or anyone would expect. In fact, in this culture, this would have been an unheard of response in this uh, Jewish first century culture. So here's verse 17. I'm going to pick it back up. Uh, Luke 15, verse 17. When he, uh, the son, the son who had gone and squandered all the, the, the wealth, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, And here I am starving to death. I'm going to set out and I'm going to go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. Now I'm just going to tell you this. God does not want servants. He wants sons. He does not want servants who serve him resentfully. He wants sons and daughters who serve him because of the relationship that they have and the love that he offers them. And so as he gets close, he's probably worrying about what this is going to look like and how it's going to be. He says, But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, he's like not even listening to him. He's like, don't even let him finish the sentence. He starts telling the servants what to do. He says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet. Right? These all had meaning about your place in the family. Just basically restored. Just immediately restored to the place he was before he ever went, and before he ever sinned, and before he ever did anything. Right? The father is just so pumped that the son has come to his senses and found humility and given up his own way and now threw himself at the father to be received back. And he just restores him. He doesn't even let him get out his pre-worked out, you know, uh, you know he, he's not even going to let him finish his statement. He's like, I don't care. What you, I, you, it's fine. We're good. You, you, I see the humility all over you. You smell like pig crap, (laughs) right? You look like pig crap. Like, Like, it's enough, dude. You're restored. I mean, it would have been ridiculous for the dad to run to him and throw his arms around him. It would have been unheard of in society for him to just restore him to that position. This is something else going on here. And of course, Jesus is telling us this because he wants us to understand that God is full of joy and love and desires more than anything else to throw parties when his sons and daughters come home, right? That's what he's doing. And so he says, But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And uh, I'm just contractually required to make this joke. Um, If you've heard my sermons on this section before, there's a Sunday school teacher teaching little kids about this, and she said, oh, but this isn't the end of the story, right? Somebody's upset. Somebody's not happy with what's going on in this story. Who's not happy with this story? And a little kid looked up at the Sunday school teacher and said, the fatted calf! (laughs) It just always wor- it always works. That's that's. By the way, it's not the end of the story. That would be a great place to end it. That should be like you know the the screen kind of closes in on the embrace between the dad, and then you know in the background is the tent that's just starting to get thumping, and you know the the pigs just starting to turn on the spit or whatever, like or the fatted calf, not the pig. Sorry, that would that would have been a whole nother problem, uh, right? Like. You could see it kind of closing right there, but that's not, that, wasn't the, that, wasn't, that was wasn't only half the point. Jesus is talking to two, people, two different groups of people. He's talking to the sinners that are sitting right there listening to everything he's saying, and he's going, you are just like one step away from being embraced by your Father. If you would just find humility and give up your way and bring yourself home and say, I can't do this on my own, then God would absolutely throw his arms around you and restore you back to where you're supposed to be. Your sins would be forgiven. You would be justified. This would be amazing. You'd be invited right back into this party. And it doesn't even matter that tomorrow you would struggle with the same sins that you struggled with today. It doesn't even matter that you're not put back together exactly, that you talk like a sailor. It doesn't matter that you, you know, have all these habits that are going to have to be broken and changed over a course of, of a period of time, that you're going to become more like Jesus over time. And right now, you, you aren't there at all but you're still completely, 100% accepted into the kingdom. And he's talking to them, and they're hearing that story, and they're like, wow, this is incredible. But that's not the only people that he's talking to. There's a, I don't want to call it passive-aggressive, but he's sending a message to the Pharisees who are listening and judging, and right there, right there sitting there just watching and kind of testing what's going on. And he goes, oh, that's not the end of the story. What's the end of the story? Verse 25. It's not the fatted calf. That's upset. Meanwhile, right, the story doesn't close right there. There's something else happening. This is the tag on the end of it. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And you'd think he would have had the same heart that his father had, right? That he would be running to throw his arms around his brother and just be so pumped that he was back, that he was alive, that he was safe, like just restored. I mean, the wrong that was done was done to the father, not even to him. His inheritance, you could split hairs as to what he lost in the situation, but he had plenty. You'd think he'd be pumped. Meanwhile, the older brother, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he was called he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he was because he has him back safe and sound. Verse twenty-eight, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. Like that is the response that I'm worried about. For some of us who have let our hearts become cynical. For some of us who have let our hearts become, like, turned to stone. We don't feel compassion anymore for people. We look at them and we think, they're going to do it again. They're going to hurt people. I don't know if I can trust them. I'm not sure it's fair. Jesus tells a bunch of stories about fairness and what that looks like. This... We shouldn't be throwing a party for this person. We shouldn't be celebrating this person because, are you kidding? Right, that, that cynical nature, that, that works its way into us. And the culture says that's great, that's okay, and that's protecting you. But in reality, we're called to work through our stuff, deal with our things, but not let ourselves get cynical and to be celebrating any time we see that breakthrough in someone's life and to act like everything is now forgiven and put aside because it is. Even if they haven't figured out how to act the same way that you do, or like have the same morals exactly, or there's going to be years of them working through what it looks like to be a Christian over a long period of time, we can either look at that situation with cynicism and say, they're going to let us down, they're going to walk away, they're not going to do what they're supposed to do, they're not going to change the way they're supposed to change, I don't see it, I don't think it's going to happen, or or we can celebrate. Like those are our options. Because it, I think Jesus would rather us be full of joy and full of hope in every one of these situations and see what is not there yet and believe that those things are going to come to pass than to meet those situations with cynicism and say, come on, right? No way. We've seen change in this, even in this congregation, in people's lives that is just like stunning, it is overwhelming. It can and does happen. And when we give up on people, when we cut them off, when we say forget it, we're just giving into that cynical heart. okay? And we're missing the idea that joy and hope is possible through celebration. And so the father is just devastated, right, by this. The son became angry and refused to go in, so the father went out and pleaded with him. He pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years, what does it say? I've been what? I've been what? Slaving. Slaving. Does that sound like a son? In reality, what this father had was two servants and no sons. And when his son came home, a son, and he was able to restore him, that was something to celebrate. But his older brother, the older son has been slaving, not serving, not working alongside for the kingdom, but slaving for him. He says, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Does that sound like a Pharisee? Does that sound like some of us who are just wrapped up in, you know, the religiosity of our church history or kind of our family situation, and all we think about is following the rules and we've missed something significant. We become a slave and we follow the rules instead of actually becoming a son and having a relationship with a God who loves us. He said, you never even gave me a young goat. Forget about the fatted calf. I didn't even get a goat. But by the way, goat, that's ter- goats are delicious. Like, I don't... Go to the Caribbean and have some cur- curried goat, Right? Come on. You never even gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when, listen to this, man, you can't make this up. But when this son of yours, not my brother, he's dead to me. He'll never change. He's the same as he's always been and he'll always be the same. I've given up on him. When this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home. You kill the fatted calf for him. Good. Enjoy that. I'm not going in. My son the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But when we we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he is alive again, he was lost and is found. And I just think cynical Christians are missing it, man. We're missing it. If we allow cynicism to creep in, if we allow cynicism to creep in, we can't join the party. We can't bring ourselves to celebrate when other people are found because we think it's not fair, or we've been hurt by it, or we can't just let it happen. We can't join the party. You miss the party. By the way, he not only missed the party for his brother, but he missed the party for himself. He could have been throwing parties all the time with his friends and celebrating all the time while his brother was away. And what was he doing? Missing his own party and then missing the party of his brother because he was living just with intense resentment. Because cynical Christians, what they end up doing is they end up serving God with resentment. They end up following the rules and missing the relationship. They end up saying, I'm doing everything perfectly, religiously correct, and yet I couldn't be any further away from God than I am right now. And God, you owe me something for all that I have done or given up. There's something in their heart that just says, "Like, hey, God, He's not for me the way He seems to be for all these other people who are messy. Like, I've been slaving for Him and following all these rules and doing all this stuff right, and it still feels like He doesn't love me the way that He should." Like, that's that's cynicism. The third one, they cynical Christians judge everybody harsher than themselves. Right? What does he say? But when this son of yours, he's the one that's messed up. He's terrible. He's got so much sin. He missed his own resentment, his own hatred. He still hasn't forgiven or let go of whatever's going on. He's the one dealing with all kinds of sin and, and difficulty. Like it's going in both directions. And the last one they miss, they miss the celebration. Man, I don't want to live with cynicism in my heart. I want to be at the party. And I just wonder where you're letting that creep in because that's where the culture is going. And there's a lot of things that create cynicism in our lives, things that are letting us down all over the place. I mean, like the whole political process, for one. I mean, I don't want to get real political on you, but I feel a lot of cynicism when it comes to all that. I feel a lot of cynicism when it comes to, I don't know, the way the government works or the way that you know institutions, but I'm none of that should affect how I feel about what God is doing in His kingdom and His church and people coming into the kingdom. It's like I can let myself get cynical and I can let that spill over into my spiritual life, or I can just meet all of that opportunity for cynicism with hope and joy and celebrate every time I get a chance because that's what God has called us to do, and to resist that means to stand in joy and in hope, to stand in celebration whenever we possibly can. Not to meet it with cynicism, but to meet it with joy and with hope. Let me me finish us in prayer God, would you just show us places in our heart where we have allowed cynicism to creep in, and would you help us to just push that out? Jesus, would we know that you are good, that while people will let us down and we will deal with hurt in this life, God, that you You are a God who loves us. You call us good. You are a God who is joyful. You are a God who is full of hope. God, would you let us emulate that in this world to deal with the places we've been hurt and then to move on and meet those things with joy and hope and with celebration. God, would this be the kind of church that celebrates as we see people move closer to their father from far away and will we not be the brother who stands in the field trying to decide if you can join the party, but we would rush to the party and we would celebrate what you're doing. God, we ask that you grow your kingdom here. In Jesus' name, amen.